HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Learn more about PASA's 2021 virtual conference at pasafarming.org slash conference. This week on Meet and 3, it's our 100th episode. We're breaking the mold to kick off our mini-series on global trade. Vegetable, fruits, grains, and cooking technique pass from one region to another. And that's interesting that that region transformed that ingredient into their own specialties. There was a time where black pepper was a luxury. And we know that because people were willing to invest huge amounts of money to go to the Spice Islands in order to get uh, pepper. <laughs> you know, stuff we take for granted now. You know, you go into a restaurant and it's free. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking dairy, one of my very favorite topics. Uh, joining me today is Aaron DeLong. He manages educational programming for PASA, Sustainable Agriculture, in the eastern part of Pennsylvania, and he facilitates year-round field day events in the region. He is also the statewide lead education coordinator for uh, PASA's Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship. Aaron works to empower farmers as teachers and helps to build farms that succeed socially, economically, and ecologically. From your lips to God's ear there, Aaron, that's an amazing mandate you have. (laughs) (laughs) What would we do without people like you? So why don't we start by having you tell us about PASA Sustainable Agriculture and, you know, a little bit more about what you actually do for them. Sure. Uh, PASA Sustainable Agriculture is 30 years old. Um, we're a nonprofit organization in Pennsylvania. Uh, we serve, we do some work in surrounding states, but we're mostly Pennsylvania-based. Um, our we're most well known for our annual winter conference, the Farming for the Future conference. Uh, it's coming right up. <laughs> coming right up. Tomorrow is is the beginning because we're virtual this year, online as as all of our other uh, organizational partners across the country. The other big nonprofit ag organizations. Everyone's virtual this year, and uh, we're actually going to be doing about three weeks of programming, very spread out, the same amount of workshops, but very spread out to try to uh, get more accessibility. So I don't work that much with the conference. I, I, I help support it. Most of my work is in the eastern region of Pennsylvania, like you said. 
I do educational programming in this part of the state where I grew up. I'm also statewide lead for dairy grazing apprenticeship. Uh, I help with the farm-based research projects that PASA engages in. Um, yeah, it's a PASA. PASA is basically a farmer-to-farmer exchange organization. It was begun by farmers, and it fills. You know, you have extension, which is really about disseminating research happening at land-grant universities to farmers. PASA fills the role of uh, empowering farmers as teachers and talking to one another, sort of another aspect of, of uh, farmer training and development. Mm-hmm. Are, you know, <clears throat> just uh, out of curiosity, are there a lot of organizations, state-run organizations like yours? Uh, do that, does that exist in many states, all states, your state only? You know, PASA was one of the early ones, um, but there are a lot now because uh, the work we do is valuable and i think i think pennsylvania was a little ahead of the curve on it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but now if you look at the nofos the northeast organic food association chapters sure. throughout the northeast uh you know everybody has the ever, ever all these nonprofits have their own particular flavor and, and nofos particularly tied to organic organic pasta we're not lim- limited to organic production but a lot of our farmers are organic either certified or or in spirit um, and then in the Midwest, Moses is, is a closest organization. In the West, EcoFarm is a conference that's very similar to PASA's, although EcoFarm itself is it's really just a conference, not a, uh, a year-round organization. Um, so th- there are the sustainable agriculture working groups have a lot of overlap. Uh, there was one in the South. There's still one in the Northeast. So we, we do have a lot of analogs around OFA in Pennsylvania, Ohio Ecological Food and Farming Association. Yeah. yeah. More and more we see good sister organization as it just speaks to the power and uh, growth of the sustainable agriculture movement, whether right. you call it sustainable, regenerative, whatever uh, kind of buzzword you want to use. It's <laughs> growing and it's and it's continuing to take uh, it's an increasing uh, part of the market share. That's fantastic. Um, so, well, yeah, I, I know PASA has a lot of different kinds of programs uh, in terms of uh, informing young farmers or, or educating existing farmers. But but one thing that you guys are doing is uh, a dairy grazing apprenticeship. W- what is that all about? Yeah, so dairy grazing apprenticeship is actually uh, over 10 years old now, started in 2010 in Wisconsin. And Basically, the notion was to apply the apprenticeship model that we see in skilled trades such as welding or electricians or plumbers and apply it to agriculture. Agriculture isn't, you know, anybody who's uh, farmed um, probably understands that uh, the the traditional educational model in, in the United States isn't a great avenue to teach someone how to farm. It can teach us a lot of theory and a lot of understanding around botany and animal science. But the farming is, a, is very physical in nature, and there's a great deal of uh, innovation on the job. And so apprenticeship is, is meant to combine this related technical instruction that, that you can get through school with on-the-job training. And it's also paid so that, you know, you can... Uh, I guess part of the, the value there is that young people or even career changers who are looking for a new career can, can explore agriculture at minimal financial risk as opposed to a four-year degree where, where you might go into significant debt. And then um, 
you know, so apprenticeship is a model uniquely seated, suited to agriculture and other skilled trades. So in other words, you guys would accept an apprentice who had not gone to four years of, uh, you know, had not gotten four years of, of schooling in agricultural studies. You can just Absolutely. say, hey, I want to check this out and see how it works. And if I like it, I'll go to school for it. Or maybe I won't. But yeah, DGA, that's the acronym for Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship. It was, it was begun in Wisconsin. It came to Pennsylvania about five years ago. PASA signed a memorandum of understanding with DGA to administer it in the state. Our first apprentice uh, was fresh out of high school. Oh, no uh, kidding. From the federal, yeah, federal Department of Labor regulations, uh, you have to be 18 to engage in a formal registered apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to have the equivalent of a GED. Right. Um, but if, if you have those, if you meet those qualifications, then, yeah, you can apprentice. And and it's absolutely uh, a good alternative um, for young people who who might not uh, want to go to college or might want to explore another trade before eventually they do. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, our first, our first apprentice was right out of high school. And, and uh, we've also had apprentices in their 40s. <laughs> I was going to say I could sign up. <laughs> You could. I love the yeah. dairy business. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I've been well, very interested in it. For You know, once I started doing this show, you know, I got interested in all different aspects of, um, of especially of livestock, of course. I mean, I, I got very exercised about the meat industry to the point where I actually wrote a book about it, you know, industrialized oh. meat production. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I like the livestock aspect of farming a lot, and I'm always curious. So, um, but let's, let's keep going, because I, I want you to talk a little bit about what I think a lot of people who are not in the dairy industry um, might understand, and that is, you know, what, what would you say is the biggest difference between a conventional dairy operation and what the kind of program, you know, a dairy grazing program is, is how, how do they differ in style? Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's so much diversity. Uh, nobody, no two farmers farm the same way, and that goes for every sector that I've seen. But there are some basic differences. The standard conventional dairy operation in the United States, States is a confined operation. It might not be a 10,000 cow confined operation. It might just be 80 cows, but still they tend to be in the barn uh, the vast majority of the time and fed grain. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's, uh, they could be fed, I mean, definitely could be fed forage too, but if you're going to be producing a hundred pounds of milk per day, which is kind of, uh, the goal. A good grade in the industry, but it's it's not definitely not unheard of. It's more and more common. Um, you're going to be feeding a significant amount of grain to the to the uh, cow. So when the a cow grazing, is, yeah, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. A grazing dairy, um, by contrast, is forage based. Now, again, we have a lot of variants there. Some of our dairies are meeting the organic minimum of 30% dry matter intake off pasture, which means about a third of the diet of the cow is is forage. A lot of our dairies are uh, closer to 80% forage, and we definitely have some 100% grass dairies. And so in a broader view, to be honest, what I think is a real difference is in confinement, you're really managing the animal in grazing, you're managing the land with the animal. So it's a little bit like when we look at organic farming for plants. Are you managing the plant or are you, man- are you, or are you managing the soil from which the plant grows? You're going a, a step back. And if you create healthy soil, healthy forage, 
you know you're going to have a healthy cow and healthy milk. Um, you know, the, the, the chemical composition, the physical composition of milk from cows that are uh, taking a high percentage of their diet off pasture is significantly different than that of cows that are taking primarily grain. And um, that's, you know, that's kind of verified. So is that, yeah. Well, yeah, what are ahead. those differences? Go ahead. I mean, what are the differences? I mean, is it is the milk richer? Is there more butterfat? Is it, you know, does it, do you get the sense of the terroir, as it were? Yeah. Um, you know. Well, all, like, of those, all of those things definitely come to the fore. I mean, I, I mean some of them more, the, more than others. Uh, you know, I, I think when you look at the, some of the very high-end cheesemakers, they go for grass-fed milk because of exactly what you're saying, the terroir, and, and, and also the, the omega-3 to, um, the omega-3 ratios are, are different in grass milk, and the conjugated linoleic acid content is greater in grass milk. These are things that are uh, looked for from nutritionists and also from food artisans alike. This isn't to say that grain doesn't have its place in a cow's diet, but um, we generally see that farms that have high forage and uh, high intake off pasture tend to produce uh, higher quality milk. Uh-huh. Interesting. So um, what, just, just out of, to give us a sort of um, context for you know, what you guys are doing, the dairy industry is pretty significant in uh, Pennsylvania. What, what do you know what it represents in terms of economic contribution to the state? Like how, you know, is it like, sure. where does it stand in that sense? Well, there are a lot of different ways to, to measure economic impact. And it, it can be kind of, um, can be kind of tricky. But basically, dairy is the largest agricultural sector in Pennsylvania. It's uh, the, just the milk produced in the last census year was about $2 billion dollars. So the sales were considered about $2 billion. Wow. Uh, poultry is gaining. Uh, when you look at poultry, you're looking at eggs and broilers c- combined. And that's number two and, and is about $1.7 billion. Um, but, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, it's the largest agricultural sector. And it's a mainstay of rural communities. It's a mainstay of the plain communities. It's really the cornerstone and has been the cornerstone of the agricultural economy in Pennsylvania for for a very long time. And Pennsylvania is a, is a very agricultural-based state. We're the, we were the second in organic sales in the last census. I think last year we were third. But we wow. have a, a tremendous agricultural production. That's fantastic. So um, in terms of the dairy industry nationwide, you know, where the trend has been towards collapse, <laughs> uh, especially yeah. for small to mid-sized operations. Well, how does how does Pennsylvania stand in in that sense? Are you seeing as many of your dairy farms uh, being either acquired by other larger concerns or just going out of business, or are they kind of holding their own there? Well, wh- why has this collapse occurred? There are a lot of different reasons, but one of the reasons it hits the small and mid-sized farms so much is if you're basically a confinement operation, you, you're coming more and more into direct competition with massive confinement operations who can achieve an, economies, an, an economy of scale that, that you can't dream of. Pasture-based operations naturally tend to, towards a smaller scale because there are only so many acres you can move the cows across and get them back to milk. Now, some of the uh, quote-unquote certified organic operations in the, in the West are 
achieving pretty big economies of scale under organic certification with some real questionable grazing practices. Um, but still, uh, pasture has been organic and now grass milk have been um, kind of refuges for the smaller producer. In Pennsylvania, we've definitely seen the same trends in dairy that, that we've seen across the country, but we have fared a little bit better. Uh, our farm losses compared to those of Wisconsin on a percentage or number level have not been as severe, but it's definitely still happening. I've, I've been working with uh, this apprenticeship program for five years. Um, I've registered 20 farms as, as certified master grazer mentor farms for apprentices, and uh, four of them have left the industry. So it's a difficult climate, but what we see is increasingly a lot of our farms are well-equipped to meet it precisely because they're, ad they're creating what is essentially a value-added product, even if they're just certified organic. And those markets have remained resilient in the face of both COVID and the larger economic uh, downward trend for dairy. Right, right. Well, we're going to talk about uh, COVID and its impact on the industry in just a second. We're going to take a short break for a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Aaron DeLong. Please stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Cultivating environmentally sound, economically viable, and community-focused farms and food systems. PASA Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference is one of the largest gatherings of sustainable farmers, food system professionals, and changemakers in the nation. The 2021 virtual conference takes place January 19th to February 5th and features more than 90 sessions on topics that include soil health, climate change, crop production, livestock grazing, urban agriculture, community building, food justice, and much, much more. Don't miss keynote speaker Robin Wall Kimmerer, scientist and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Learn more about PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2021 virtual conference and register online at pasafarming.org slash conference. Okay, back with Aaron DeLong <laughs> from PASA Sustainable Agriculture. We're talking about the dairy industry in Eastern Pennsylvania. So um, we were just chatting uh, about COVID, which has been a particular driver of bankruptcy for many dairy farmers, thanks to the loss of institutional buyers. You know, they haven't, uh, just for people who don't understand this, it's if, if, if all the restaurants and hospitals and, you know, various other uh, large buyers are unable to purchase your milk or schools in particular, for instance, um, if they're not buying milk, then farmers have no place to go with their milk uh, for reasons which we can discuss in a minute. But um, so in terms of uh, your statewide um, uh, dairy operations, has COVID had the same kind of desperate impact on your farmers or do they have more, more nimbleness and flexibility in terms of their markets? Um, you know, again, it's it's a mixed bag. All, there's so much diversity in people's experiences, but I'd say generally the farms I work with um, and the farms that PASA works with beyond dairy have um, have done okay with COVID. Some of them have done very well, actually. 
you know, our direct market dairies that are selling raw milk direct to consumer, that are selling uh, cheese direct to consumer, um, they can't meet demand. Wow. So, um, so you raw know, milk when, is legal in Pennsylvania. You can because like yeah, in New York State, well, it is not legal, and there's a whole underground railroad thing going on with raw milk. Yeah, there is. <laughs> and that is also um, true in my home state of Rhode Island. Also, it is illegal there, which I don't think is a bad thing. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a fan, but you know that's another story. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have another podcast about that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I think, have a lot uh, to say about raw milk, but yeah, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> well, raw, raw milk is legal in Pennsylvania, but to be honest, raw milk farms that go into direct sales, raw milk ends up typically being a small part of what they're doing. What what they're usually doing is is making cheese, which is far more shelf stable, or uh, yogurt, kefir, these kind of products that have a little more stability and, and often a little more demand. Um, so. You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those um, institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were were bare, um, the organic market stayed strong because the organic market didn't rely on institutional buyers as much as conventional milk. And the farms that were selling direct to consumers uh, had a wide open marketplace. I think in a little bit, what we need to look at with coronavirus and COVID is how it spoke to the power of local food systems as not just like nice ideas, but actually uh, resilient strategies in the face of uh, disaster. Well, in the face of supply chain disruption. Yeah, right. When there's a supply chain disruption, you need to be able to access food that is not coming in from California or Wisconsin or whatever, you know, if you're in the Northeast or the mid mid Atlantic or whatever it is. Anyway. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a great lesson in that for sure. Um, now one of the articles that I read, uh, in preparation for this was, um, a piece in the Penn state extension website. Um, and, uh, Dave Swartz, who is assistant director for animal systems programs with the extension school there is, is quoted as saying, uh, for Pennsylvania's dairy industry to pull through of through COVID, it must figure out a way to lower the cost of production and improve, enhance and expand local and regional food networks, which we've just discussed. But, but what struck me about that particular, uh, quote from him is, you know, it's not like people are out there spending money wildly on their dairy operations. Like, how do you lower the cost of production and stay the same size? You know, it's like you were saying earlier, like economies of scale play heavily into this. And so if you're a small to medium sized dairy farmer, you know, how exactly is he proposing that people could lower production costs? So it's interesting because when I started my work uh, with dairy grazing apprenticeship, and I, I should say that I, I came from a, a vegetable farming background. My, my partner still runs this diversified vegetable CSA. So I, I've learned a lot in the last uh, five years. But when I started, most of the advice I saw from uh, industry consultants was to increase production per, per cow, make more milk, which in a surplus market is an interesting strategy. Now we see more and more um, advice about lowering production costs. Well, the grazers that I work with, most of the ones that have been doing it the longest, didn't really go into it from an ideological standpoint of of this is um, the right thing to do, so to speak. They looked at it very practically, as farmers do. They looked at the economics. And the reality is, you know, you can go for highest production per cow with very high input costs and very high output, 
or you can look at a system that maybe doesn't produce as much milk per cow, but also has much lower production costs. And what is your income over feed cost? What is that margin? And start looking at those variables and, and start to realize where profitability really lies. So for a lot of grazing operations, you know, look at the typical mid, uh, mid-scale to small-scale dairy in Pennsylvania that's primarily confinement. How can they optimize their land base? How can they get the cows out on pasture a little bit more, not necessarily changing to even a 30% dry matter off in, intake off pasture, not even something that big, but can they take you know a few pounds off pasture per cow? Because if they can, that's less money they have to spend buying grain, which is increasingly expensive. And you know you don't have to buy it, or if you're making it, you don't have to plant it, harvest it, store it. You know, the pasture, when pro- when properly managed with a herd, um, at low amounts of intake off pasture, you're not even going to affect your production per cow. You're just saving money. I think those are the kind of strategies that uh, Dave is talking, speaking towards there. And to be clear, like I'm not advocating for everyone to go to pasture. I think there are excellent farms in all sectors of dairy. But I think there's a lot that um, confinement dairy can learn from pasture producers. And I think the door swings both ways there because I think some of the innovations in conventional dairy have been tremendous over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So um, to go forward a little bit more into this, are there programs through the state or the U- USDA uh, that are offering financial incentives or opportunities to the kind of small and medium producers we're talking about to help get their products to go, you know, to go back to that value added idea to, you know, help them get their products more directly to consumers uh, rather yeah. than having to sell to co-ops like DFA. Um, like, sure. You know, funding for so, local processing facilities. I know that's a big issue in my own home state of Rhode Island. They have there's basically nobody who processes or very few dairy processors within the state. And that's really hamstrung the few remaining farms that we have. Yeah, and if you go back 30 years ago, I bet it's a very different picture. You know, Pennsylvania used to have more small processors than anybody in the Northeast, and they're almost all gone. And now, (laughs) now what goes around, you know, now we're looking at kind of rebuilding them. How is it happening now, though? It's very interesting. We're we're seeing more and more models like uh, Caputo Brothers in Pennsylvania, which uh, is kind of an artisan cheese maker of primarily just mozzarella. Now they're starting to make ricotta too. And what they do is these are two cheese makers who know how to make cheese, but they don't know how to make milk. So they've uh, been buying the contracts of Pennsylvania dairies um, and and using that milk of, of dairies around them to make this cheese and really building, meeting that kind of local food demand that we're seeing more and more of from customers all around the country and doing it at a, at a kind of a, a small scale where you're aggregating a few dairies so those dairies don't have to, you know, because if you start a value-added business, that's a whole other business on top of being a farmer. But but when we look at these kind of small collaborative efforts with an artisan food maker with a few farms maybe feeding product into them and then they make a value-added product from that, I think that's a really interesting model that has a lot of potential. Uh, there is funding like the dairy investment program that uh, the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture put out through the first Pennsylvania Farm Bill that helped fund Caputo Brothers to go from uh, supporting two dairy farms in Pennsylvania entirely through their milk contract uh, to supporting four. Caputo Brothers expanded and bought two more milk contracts. Um, uh, 
I also had two apprentices in the dairy grazing program who applied for the dairy investment program. Both of them got funds to start value-added operations on the dairy where they were apprenticing so they could develop their own businesses and stay on with those farms into the future. They're selling direct to consumer. Um, The value-added producer grant from the USDA, which is uh, renewed through the Farm Bill, That's a great opportunity for producers in all sectors of agriculture to find funds for exactly what we're talking about, going into a value-added market. And and also Center for Dairy Excellence in Pennsylvania, which receives a lot of funding from the Department of Agriculture. They run a couple of uh, consultant programs, including the Dairy Decision Consultant Program, where a farm can apply to hire a professional consultant and get a few thousand dollars to kind of envision what the possibilities for the operation might be if they want to go in a direction like value added. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Or even go to organic. Right, right. I was uh, chatting with a dairy farm in Rhode Island and um, because that's where I'm based most of the time. And um, they they were lamenting the, uh, you know, extraordinary number of regulations that have uh, prevented them from adding a added value operation like they wanted to start making yogurt uh, from their milk. But the state regulations were so onerous uh, that it really was not it was not, in fact, possible for them to do that uh, without uh, really significantly retooling their existing infrastructure, which would have been more expensive than the dairy could support. So I'm, I'm wondering about sort of the, the regulations in Pennsylvania sound a lot more um, common sensible <laughs> if there if there is all this money floating around for people to start little operations like that. Can you speak a little bit about the regulate regulatory atmosphere in Pennsylvania? Well. <laughs> Boy, I could study the regulatory atmosphere in Pennsylvania for the rest of my life. (laughs) And I don't know if I'd have a good answer to your question. Um, But uh, no, Pennsylvania, I think um, one thing I really applaud our state for is uh, I really feel like Pennsylvania does make an effort to serve farmers of all scales. And I really feel like our Department of Agriculture, at least under current leadership, really recognizes that um, empowering farmers of all scales makes Pennsylvania stronger. And so from a regulatory atmosphere, uh, you know, just the raw milk regulations in Pennsylvania, you know, they're strict, but they but you can sell raw milk. And that's a big difference than a lot of other states. I think um, definitely I think generally the more urbanized the region becomes, the more expensive it becomes to operate within that region. And Pennsylvania still has a tremendous amount of rural areas and also has a very strong agrarian rural tradition that continues to hold sway in in, uh, places of power in in the state house. And I think that helps. But there's no doubt that, um, uh, you know, it, it costs more and more to do business every year. And I think that some of these programs like the dairy investment program that uh, PDA offered. It's not. It's. It hasn't been renewed, but it, you know those kind of programs are coming and going. I think there are attempts by the state to help people cross that uh, really initial investment hurdle that can block you from ever uh, really changing your operation because of exactly what you said. The investment can be so massive that you don't even see see paying off the debt in your lifetime, which yeah. 
is very difficult. Well, that's what they were saying at this farm. Though you know, I was chatting with the, you know, the younger generation. Really, I mean, literally the kids who basically manage the farm because the parents both have jobs off farm, like so many other farming families. And so, yeah. you know, they were the girls were like, yeah, we wanted to start a yogurt thing, and you know, just could not get past the red tape and the the amount of money that it would have cost for them to build out uh, a separate facility you know, a different structure. I mean, it was just, it was dizzying um, what they were talking about. But let's, let's, let's pull back to sort of a macro level here and talk a little bit about, um, you know, what would you endorse? The reason dairy prices are so in the, in the dumper right now is because of the overproduction of milk, right? I mean, isn't that largely the culprit here is that you have People have been encouraged to to make too much milk and then and there's no there's no like in Canada where they control the supply and demand. We don't seem to be able to (laughs) we can't we don't seem to be able to implement anything like that here. Um, So what what would you endorse as as something that would uh, potentially revive the industry um, in addition to the programs that you are already, you know, essentially managing in Pennsylvania? I think it's a hard question because, you know, we can talk a lot about, I mean, the first thing I'll say is I think supply management is a good idea. And I think that a lot of dairy co-ops are doing it de facto. Land of Lakes has a quota system in place and they've had it in place for some time. Organic Valley has their farmers on quota at this point. That's basically supply management. Um, It's very American to refuse to allow the government to take that kind of hand. Um, but I think that, um, I, I just think it's smart because the, the bigger truth here is that consumption of fluid milk has decreased since the 1970s. And I don't think anyone really sees that bouncing back. So we have to acknowledge changing diet. And, um, you know, I think, uh, Well, I think part of it is the recognition of changing trends. So, you know, um, where is the demand? Where is the market growing? You know, the market, the, the, the decrease in consumption of fluid milk, and I'm not saying it's directly correlated, but it it coincides with the real beginning of the intensification of the dairy model towards confinement. Uh huh. Interesting. You know, the demand among consumers for dairy products is in cheese, uh, yogurt still, but not as much as, as 10 years ago, I guess, um, uh, butter, and and also in the larger food sector, it's toward organic, it's toward uh, uh, animal welfare, it's towards, you know, the kind of markets that you know, we might even consider value added with these additional certifications. That's where the, the consumer demand is. And so, you know, can we transition um, operations into these kind of modalities? And can we, can we also find um, markets that are maybe not expressly uh, fluid milk that farms can transition into um, 
that will that will be profitable. You know, when you when we talk about the expense of of some of the value added stuff or buying farms, that's another thing that's nice about a grass based dairy operation. Dairy is very expensive to enter into, but smaller dairies are more approachable for a person to own and operate within a lifetime. Particularly if your infrastructure is limited because you have cows on on pasture a good bit. So I think that. Part of what we have to recognize is the dairy market's been changing for a long time. And the other thing we have to recognize is where is the consumer demand and how can the industry go to meet that? Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, I think the industry recognizes where the demand is, but often they attempt to meet it through uh, continuing this, you know, multi-thousand cow um, uh, uh, model often based in places where there isn't any grass and, and there's very and there are severe water concerns. I mean, the idea of, of New Mexico and Texas in these arid places that are sustained by aquifer water being the biggest growth places for uh, industry as water intensive as dairy is, is really upsetting. It's, it's yes. not smart. It's not smart for any of us to, to to go in that direction. No, and it, it, it will soon become ever more apparent as those water issues become ever more uh, serious, which they, you know, over the next 10 years, they certainly will. I mean, I anticipate um, massive infrastructure pro- projects in which, you know, a pipeline is built from, you know, Lake Michigan down to New Mexico. You know what I mean? It's like they're yeah. not going to be able to keep doing this stuff. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I was going to get to that point of like of that to the point that you just made about these, you know, 10,000 cow dairies, um, you know, in California or Texas or wherever, you know, even the ones in Wisconsin. I mean, as you say, with the downturn of, of consumer interest in fluid milk, um, and yet you're continuing to pump out huge amounts of fluid milk. Like, is that that makes me want to talk about Tom Vilsack <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the U.S. Dairy Export Council that he has just yeah. revolved back into the government from. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, he 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 should know better. Like, you know, after already been being U.S., uh, you know, head of the secretary of agriculture for eight years under Obama, during which time the dairy industry, you know, really began to decline at such a tremendous rate. Um, and then he goes on to the U.S. Dairy Export Council, uh, you know, f- to, to continue that model, obviously, to continue to yeah. push farmers to keep pumping out milk that, you know, he then has to find a, a market for in another part of the world. I mean, it's just it's it's mind blowing. So so what do you think about Tom Vilsack taking over the reins yet again as secretary of agriculture? I was deeply disappointed myself, but perhaps, you know, something yeah, about th- him that I don't <laughs> No, I, I think, you know, the the bigger bigger issue here, the bigger thing to to talk about which you which you directly pointed to is are we managing for uh regional and local economic health or are we managing for, for multinational markets? Because I think one reason, you know, the milk powder market is a powerful driver of, of US policy, US dairy policy. And you know the big the big dairy concerns often seem more concerned with growing markets rather than the, de- the declining U.S. market, which will benefit the ten thousand cow dairies, but will drive the smaller dairies that are serving a domestic population out of business. And so you know they look towards Asia because there are so many people who could be drinking milk in China and India, while in the United States they might feel like the market is already defined. 
Um, and I think, you know, Tom Vilsack definitely, you, you point directly towards where he's coming from, the Dairy Export Council and DMI and um, removal of whole milk from schools, which is something a lot of our farmers go crazy about. But I think, um, I think that idea of uh, global trade is, you know, Vilsack, I think in some ways he he wasn't doing it on his own. You know, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was very close to being passed under Obama and, and only wasn't because of a lot of outcry, bipartisan outcry around it because it was so, there were a lot of, a lot of questions and part of it was you weren't even allowed to read the document. You know, Congress people had to go in private office and they couldn't copy it. And, Oh so my that, gosh. that kind of I didn't know that. that global trade that 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 kind of real drive towards globalism, I think Vilsack to some extent just was a representation of that. And I do think that trade is a good thing, but I, I like how Canada um, has ensured a baseline stability for their dairy farmers, so that if they want to get a loan, the banks aren't afraid to give them a loan because the banks see it as as stable. They know that the the people have a guaranteed baseline level of income uh, within within dairy. And, and that's good for everybody. It's good for the feed dealer. It's good for the tractor dealer. It's good for all the industries that farms feed. That's one thing we really need to look at. We want rural economic development. You know, manufacturing comes and goes. But if you have people growing food, all the industries that serve those farmers, they can't pick up that land and put it somewhere else. It's, you know, and so, you know, Vilsack, I, I honestly think, um, I mean, yeah, it was disappointing for a lot of us, but I also think um, the notion might be uh, we've had a very interesting last four years and things are very, unst- you know, I mean, that's an understatement. Things are very destabilized. And yes. what I've heard the party line a little bit be is we need to bring someone in who knows how a federal agency is actually supposed to work and to rebuild an agency. And I think we're seeing that across the federal government. I mean, you know, a lot of the people put in charge of these agencies specifically wanted to dismantle them. So Sonny Perdue basically quoted Earl Butts like two years ago at the World Dairy Forum saying, get bigger, get out. Yes, he did. So, um, you know, I, I don't think Vilsack is totally <laughs> opposed to that philosophy. But uh, I do think a functioning USDA that is um, well-coordinated could be of benefit to all farmers. Yes, I, I agree with you there. I mean, I, that was to me, that was the only, <clears throat> the only saving grace was that here's a guy who knows the ropes. He knows what the agency is supposed to look like and, you know, will put it back together <laughs> to some approximation of what it once was uh, for better or for worse. Um, with that, I think I'll let you go, Aaron. But boy, this has been an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed the, the chatting with you. Yeah, Katie, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. And listen, you know, keep uh, keep in touch. Like if something interesting is happening or there's a topic you want to talk about, I'm you know, Monday rolls around every week. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's, uh, right. thanks for reaching out to Pasa. It's a it's a pleasure to engage oh, in I'd, the conversation. I would love to actually. I'd love to come out and see what you're doing. And after COVID, perhaps I will. Sounds good. Like, yep. Thanks so much, and thank you to my sponsor. And uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, next week, Mark Bittman joins me. In case you're interested oh, with a new book, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll let you know. Well, it okay. should be interesting. Thank you so much, Aaron. So long for now, folks. See you next week. Ciao.
What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.